Thank you, Chris. Uh, Chris has been my go-to guy for three years in my class. He's the tech guy, and even though he doesn't get paid for it, I'm going to owe him big time. <laughs> he, uh, he's been the guy who's kept the classes running for me. So. But an interesting thing you said the other day, we were doing course evaluations, we did it early, and I was saying, I don't know how the evaluation turned out, and he said, well, they can't fire you. <laughs> <laughs> don't always begin with apology. They say, never apologize when you start to speak, but the two things I'd like to say. One is, this ends up being more autobiographical than I would normally ever use. Chocolate up to senility and old age, okay? <laughs> the second thing is I'm centering part of our thoughts around Advent, and I apologize, Anna, because Advent Sunday's next week, but Advent is going to take me where I want to go today. So, you know, is that one of those vehicles people use in preaching, right? And uh, because of what God's been speaking to my heart. So, um, I apologize for taking the theme, except I'm saying Advent is coming, ready or not. You can take us there next week. <laughs> it is a very special time in the church here. As we celebrate after Christ the King Sunday, we begin to celebrate Advent. And that begins on Sunday. And the cycle begins all over again. As the church in the church here tells the story anew and fresh. I need to tell you, life was much simpler when I was growing up. What's the church here? What's Advent? I grew up in a little Baptist church. And we celebrated Christmas. And that meant the Sunday before Christmas, you celebrated Christmas. <laughs> Not four weeks, right? You celebrated Christmas on that Sunday. And in the little community where I grew up, the school concert, one room school, and the Sunday school concert were the same concert. So we all came together and celebrated in our own special way. Advent was something that Catholics and Anglicans Right? <laughs> and as I grew up, you know, that was not necessarily a complimentary phrase. <laughs> and I say that with humility, because God in His goodness, I think, has brought wonderful things to the kingdom in our own days. New understandings, as Myrna says, the new pope is my pope. Uh, in the midst of our backgrounds, things do change. And I remember being asked for the first time to speak at a ecumenical group in the midst of, of uh, New Brunswick, and I was preaching on evangelical action in politics to a very mixed kind of group. So it was an interesting kind of dynamic. In our Sunday school concert, I remember some things very well. Uh, my mom and my aunt sang Star of the East every year. It was one of the most wonderful things that I'd ever heard in my life. And after all the presentations were done, Santa arrived. <laughs> Some of you identify with this, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> Everything's good, right? Little did I realize that while I was wondering about, about that whole thing called Advent, that while we were waiting for Santa, the Roman Catholics and the Anglicans were getting ready at midnight to place Jesus in the crash. And I realized that there's a whole dynamic of church that we need to begin to understand. And my mother-in-law was Anglican, and she said, shouldn't be a baby there yet. That's for Christmas Eve. <laughs> Christmas Eve was for trimming the tree and delivering gifts. If you're going to have a special service in the old days, it would be New Year's Eve, watch night. 
when we came together to talk about our commitment for the following year to the Lord and to keep people from partying too much when they shouldn't be partying. <laughs> now, the Church of Reverend was teetotal, and so you need to understand that, that that may not have been the biggest problem as it was for others. After we were married, uh, Christmas became very special in our homes. And, uh, I had a resentment for Advent because of that Christmas Eve service, because that was our time. We said our special meal. Read the Christmas story. We prepared for the next day when the grandparents would arrive for breakfast. Our wedding gift to our son and daughter-in-law was a, a olive wood nativity set made in the Holy Land. The, the you know figures quite big, and uh, I made a pine storage box in which, when you opened it up, it came a crash. And Jonathan called us on Christmas Eve, and I tear up. He said, I wept. We celebrated. So that's become a pattern, I hope, in their home. What part of the Christmas story do you like most? I don't know where you are, where you think about it. I've had to preach through some of this stuff quite a few times, and you know, how do you handle it each time? It'd be fresh. Is it a teenage girl with that profound faith? So young? Yes, open it. The man of honor who listened to God and ended up raising God's son. The shepherds. Not necessarily your nice shepherd of modern day. But the herd, the most glorious worship song anybody has ever heard. As the angels sang to them. What a concert. Or maybe it's Simeon and Anna who proved that, that uh, Christmas is not just for, Christ for children. Or the wise men, scholars like many of us, who have been studying long and we understand that the new king is coming. This year, I've been thinking a lot about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke tells the story as he writes to his friend Theophilus. And I need to say that I've been a fan of Luke since as a teenager I read Frank Slaughter's book, The Road to Bithynia, which is the story of Luke. I sometimes wonder if I became a historian because I liked historical novels. You take that word you like. It has a touch of an eyewitness. It's Mary's story. Can I do a little bit of back story, just so we understand, as we read the passage from Luke chapter 1. Herod the Great is in power. He's rebuilt the temple. It's a glorious place, but he's ruling under the sufferings of the Romans, and so he's trying to keep him good with them. He had major building projects. As a matter of fact, he was bankrupting the country. New towns were being established, and he was bringing in Gentiles to fill them up which didn't please the Jewish people at all. It was temperamental, dangerous to cross them in any way. A lot of people did and were sorry. Taxes were high, the temple fees were important, because <coughs> at that point in time, when we read about Zechariah, there are 20,000 priests and their families who are serving in the temple. Obviously, you can't do that very often, but all of them had to be paid from the temple revenues. So how you establish all this and make sure you have enough money to look after all these families. So most serve for two weeks a year. They come for a week and go away. Now they would all show up for Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of the Tabernacles. But the priests were not necessarily known for their piety. Richard Strauss says, The upper class of that social structure consisted of the descendants of Aaron, 
the officiating priesthood. There were about 20,000 of them in and around Jerusalem at the time, and unfortunately, many were proud, bigoted, and overly indulgent, self-seeking men, religious only in those external matters that would impress other people. That's the backstory. Let's read from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. In the time of Herod the king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zacharias' division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will, will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and will not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. May God add his blessing to reading from his word. It's interesting in the midst of this story, this man who has been serving God all of his life has a new kind of experience. Like Anna and Simeon, they've been faithfully watching for the promise of God to come, and it's been fulfilled, but they have no children. 
For the Jewish rabbis, it says seven people are excommunicated from God. And the first is a Jew who has no wife, or a Jew who has a wife and who has no child. Always over them as something that's like a cloud. Charitable, this was grounds for divorce. He could have simply said, Elizabeth, I need a wife who can bear a child. But he did not. And they lived on into old age. And now he's offering the sacrifice of incense, and it's been chosen by Lot. It's once in a lifetime opportunity. If you've done it once, you won't get a chance again. And all these years, he's been drawing lots, and it never fell on him. There have been new young priests come. And they've all probably been saying, How's Zachariah? He doesn't have a son now. I mean, God just has cursed him. And probably Zachariah was feeling much the same way. And then, the lot fell on him. The best day of his life. And he assumes that God has answered his prayer because the answer of this prayer would be going in and offering the sacrifice of incense. Because in the sacrifice of incense, the people would stand outside and pray. He'd be in the court of the priests while the people prayed in the court of the Israelites. And no doubt his step that day was a lighter step. As he went to be with God in a new and unique way. God seems to have answered his prayer. But he was about to receive more than he ever imagined. The angel appears on the right hand of the altar. I told Allison I was going to quote him today, and I will. Allison, in his Tyndale Cornerstone commentary of Luke, points out that it's a Gentile historian who writes more about angels and visions than any other gospel writer. It's interesting that it's a Gentile who's open in that kind of way. By the way, I always turn to, to Allison's commentary when I deal with something in Luke. He's focusing. He's where I am. <laughs> the angel answers, don't be afraid. Your prayers with her. You're going to have a son. I'm not sure that's what he expected the angel to tell him at that initial <laughs> moment. <laughs> and so he asked this question. How can I be sure? Now, if you're like me, it's probably the question I would have asked. Mary said, how will this happen? He said, how can I be sure? Uh, one author preaching on this title says, the title was, How Not to Talk to an Angel. <laughs> and I understand that, right? People were surprised by a slow return. He'd received a very sharp reply. I'm Gabriel. Come to tell you this good news, and you will be dumb until it happens. The people are surprised when he comes out. They know that, in fact, he's been touched with a vision. At the end of his week of service, he returns home. It's interesting that home for him was not where all the other priests necessarily lived. Many of them lived in these sort of better suburbs around Jerusalem. And those with lots of money lived down in Jericho, sort of that resort town. And uh, they would come up for their time of service. I mean, even I could swim in the Dead Sea. So, you know, it was that resort kind of place. He tells Elizabeth, and the miracle of miracles happens. She gets pregnant. And for five months, she doesn't go much outside the house. How can I be sure? Maybe her question, too. How can I be sure it's going to last? 
together they rejoice. Now all of this is preamble, believe it or not, to get rid of the question I want to ask. I identify with Zacharias. I'm old. I live with a pious wife. <laughs> I've spent my life in religion and service. However, you phrase that because I've been handled in several ways. And I'm nearing the end of formal service. And I'm sure that Zachariah was wondering is this going to be my last year of service? And yet, the question is. Why would such a devout follower of God doubt an angel? Or another way, can a person devote themselves to serving God and being about the business of religion and still not experience faith when God speaks into their lives? It's a question for me. I assume it may be a question for you. That as you serve God, can God surprise you sometimes by speaking into your life and showing you something He's never shown you before? Can we be in speaking terms with God and not be a collaborator in vision casting? Do we see all the problems but not the solutions? I say to my students often, I'm glad I lived when I lived because you're going to have a much harder time sharing the gospel in your generation than I did in mine. <coughs> Do we often then see all the problems and not the solutions? give you a bit of context for me at this point, Myrna says I'm not normal. <laughs> she means that my life has been shaped in different ways from most of yours. At age 14, I went off to United Baptist Bible Training School, took my high school, two years of university, went to Gordon College, graduated from Gordon. I married the first girl I ever went out with. God knows I have terrible choices. <laughs> with Dr. Stanford Reed, the Evangelical Presbyterian, and of five professors hired into that department, University of Guelph, four were Evangelicals. It was like going to seminary in many ways. And so, I then came back and uh, taught at Crandall for 20 years, and have been here 27 years. I've experienced over 2,500 chapels. That doesn't include sermons you preached, sermons you've been to, church services. I've been interim pastor of six Baptist churches, one Presbyterian church, and one Congregational church. As Harry knows, I've served on every committee except the Finance Committee and Convention. They were wise. <laughs> and during our last restructuring, I ended up being president of convention, and that was a heart-searching and a long process, trying to serve the mind of God. But of course, we understand that changing structure does not revitalize anything. Mm. It's a changing of God's people and their call in their lives. Mm. But back to the question then for me. Can a person devote themselves to serving God and being about the business of religion or the kingdom in spiritual terms and still not experience God's faith when God speaks? into their lives. Is it a matter of trust? I think all of us need to wrestle with the question, how do I remain open mm -hmm. to the leading of God in my life? Mm 
I've been having a great time with this course from Puritanism to Evangelicalism because we've had a variety of voices with different kinds of experiences. I believe in the charismatic, but I would not be classed as a charismatic Christian. And yet, those who are in the group who have experienced some aspects of that have really enriched our time together. How do we remain open? And understand that God's working in other people's lives can refresh and renew our own? It raises a couple of other quick questions for me. How do we pray for our children? This special toddler, John. I mentioned when he was about age two, Elizabeth and, and Zachary are wondering, what are we into now? But <laughs> he delighted their hearts. He died with a headman's axe age 30. How do you pray for your children? Do you pray that they be comfortable and wealthy and have all the things that goodness that God can give? Or that they be led by the Spirit even in the tough places and in tough times? How do we pray for each other and for us as a faculty? How do we pray for you as students? I sometimes worry that in the midst of our training and looking at spiritual things with analytical eyes that we train the spontaneity out of you. I hope you see some spontaneity in us, at least when we're laughing, if not, and crying. But uh, I worry about us becoming company people, not God's ministers in the midst of an age that needs to hear the good news of the gospel. A survey I read a number of years ago was surveying a number of people thinking about what they wanted their students to be. The professors all wanted them to be good academically. I mean, isn't that what we mark and all that kind of stuff? The denominational leaders wanted them to be competent practitioners of what it means to be a minister. I once heard someone say of a pastor, would you want him to bury your mother? It was not a compliment. <laughs> Competent <laughs> practitioners. But the laity in the churches, they said, we want a person of spiritual depth and compassion. And sometimes in the midst of what we do together as a community, we need to always remember that it's how we handle that spirituality and compassion that will ultimately sustain us in ministry. We might be good practitioners. We might be able to put everything together in a logical kind of order. But if, like Zachariah, we're confronted with an angel who wants to lead us to something new, we're saying to God, how can I be sure? Where's the faith? Where's the trust? I want to end with a quotation from one of my heroes, Dr. Cherry Zeman. Uh, it's interesting, Dr. Cherry, in talking about him, said, I'll be remembered as the principal who hired Jerry Zeman. <laughs> <laughs> and in the history of the college, I will probably be remembered as the man who succeeded Jerry Zeman. <laughs> the Baptist, uh, Federation Baptist reached its high point while Jerry was president. He wrote when his university in Czechoslovakia was giving out six Comenius medals to all of their 
graduates, including Pelican, the famous historian. One of them was given to Jersey. I had the privilege of interviewing him and interacting with him uh, on a number of levels, but in the interview, which you can go online and find, his final thing was this. Have I been a man of God, or have I been a practitioner of religion and theology, and a few other hobbies in the fields of academia? As I anticipate God's evaluation, and that is what matters, ultimately is not what God, what people say about me, or anybody, but what God will say. That question comes back hauntingly. I think I've been sincere and honest in all that I've tried to do, but what God's final evaluation will be, I'm not sure. I guess that is what salvation by faith and faith alone means, for we believe in God's grace and graciousness and in His great love and leave the rest in His hands. They've been wonderful hands. And I felt that everlasting arms had to be every step of my life. All praise be to God. I had the privilege of preaching at his funeral in terms of a presentation on Jerry. Those of us who knew him knew that he was part of the glue along with Allison and the others who came as that new group of faculty with some of you now and the Kyrie shaping of his generation. My question for us at the end is, where do we fit in the Christian story? Are we open to God surprising us this advent? Do we expect God to do things that might even change our comfortable lives? God wants <coughs> to understand that. We're going to close with uh, a great Christmas song that comes out of the 8th century, but put in verse in the 12th century, and eventually put into English in the uh, in the middle of the 20th century. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And I've stolen part of the man asunder, and I apologize <laughs> But in the midst of our lives, you'll notice that as we think it, that it brings a different name every verse for Jesus. Who is he? What is he? What does he bring to us? May it be the prayer of our lives today. O come, O come, Emmanuel. To us,